This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. Now, as I've said before, and I want to make it clear, not every illness is related to a sin issue. If you have some kind of illness, you know, I'm not trying to suggest to you that, oh, it's because, you know, you've sinned. And some people make that connection, unfortunately. And the truth is that there are some, as I've mentioned before, some illnesses that are the direct result of sin issues. If, you, if you're an alcoholic, you're going to destroy your liver. You run the potential of killing yourself. And if you've been sexually promiscuous, you could pick up a sexually transmitted disease, right? So we understand that there's some correlation between sin and sickness. Today, Pastor Gary will clear up a common misconception about the Bible and the Christian faith. Throughout the Bible, we see accounts of people being very sick because of sin in their life or because of sin in the life of their parents. What needs to be made clear is this. Every single illness is not a result of sin in someone's life. Illness can be a result of sin, but it's not an absolute thing. For example, if you are an alcoholic, you may damage your liver. God can just want what's best for you. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. At the end of Matthew, chapter 8, Jesus uh, and his disciples get in a boat. They go from uh, the town of Capernaum over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, where uh, Jesus will cast demons out of two demon-possessed men, uh, the demons in uh, Mark's gospel, identify themselves as legion, saying, for we are many, and legion uh, in a Roman uh, military unit is 6,000, where there's 6,000 demons, uh, you know, demons lie, so you can't really trust them. But one demon is one demon too many. And so Jesus cast the demons out of, uh, out of these two men. The demons in advance beg Jesus, don't throw us into the abyss, Throw us instead into the herd of swine. They, you know, probably knew that if they went into the abyss that they would be bacon. And uh, anyway, let, let's just continue now with chapter 9 because uh, so Jesus uh, hoofs it out of there. He's, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, uh, Jesus stepped into a boat and crossed over and came to his own town. So now he goes back to Capernaum. But Capernaum's going to be the home base of his ministry. Capernaum is the name of the city, the village of Nahum, where again the prophet Nahum may have been born. And uh, this will be the home base. He gets back to Capernaum. And it says in verse 2 that some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, Get up. Take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. 
What we're going to find here in chapter 9 is that it is a, a chapter uh, rich about the topic of faith. We see several faith examples here. This is the first one. We're going to see faith on behalf of another. And then we're going to see in this chapter a father's faith uh, for his daughter. We're going to see also a woman's faith for herself. We're going to see two blind men's faith. And then we're going to see uh, when Jesus heals and there's really no apparent faith. But he does just because he loves. And so here's the first example. We see faith on behalf of another because it talks here in verse 2 about some men bringing to Jesus a paralytic lying on a mat. And it says when Jesus saw their faith, it doesn't say that he saw the faith of the paralytic, but he saw the faith of the friends. It's very interesting. God responded to the faith of the friends. Sometimes you might be thinking to yourself that if somebody that you're praying for doesn't have faith, that it'll be useless, but not so. If you have faith, often God will honor your faith on behalf of another, and he does here. Now, Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, they also tell us this same story, and Mark and Luke add a little bit more information to what Matthew does. Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus is in a home He's gone back to Capernaum, and it could be that he's back in Peter's house. We don't know for sure, but it tells us back in chapter 8 that he had gone there, and he had raised Peter's mother-in-law from uh, her illness. So perhaps he's back in Peter's house. But regardless, uh, Mark's gospel tells us that the house was so packed because Mark says that he was there preaching the word. People were there for Bible study. The whole house was filled, and people couldn't get in. And here come these guys. Uh, wanting to help their friend who is paralyzed. Mark tells us that there are four friends, and they can't get to Jesus because the house is packed. So they go up on the roof, and they start breaking open the roof, making a hole in the roof, and letting their friend down. Now, this has to be quite a scene. You're there in this house with a Bible study, and Jesus is leading the Bible study. Wouldn't that be a great Bible study, right? And so you're there, and Jesus is leading the Bible. The Word is teaching the Word. I mean, how much better does it get than that? And, and, and all of a sudden, in the Bible study, you know, dust is starting to break through from the ceiling. And in those days, it was, you know, very primitive. So, you know, mud and thatched roofs, typically. And uh, so here comes the, the roof is starting to fall apart. And nobody knows what's going on. And all of a sudden, these guys are lowering their friend down. Now, I don't think they're probably making a huge hole to lower, him, to lower their friend down, you know, uh, horizontally. So they're probably making one hole, and they're lowering him down by the armpits vertically. And here come the feet down through the ceiling, and people are standing around going, you know, what in the world is going on here? And Jesus sees the faith of the friends, and that's what he's going to honor. Now, this guy is a paralytic. And it's interesting because the very first thing that Jesus does is he doesn't attend to him physically. Jesus attends to him spiritually. First thing he says to him is, your sins are forgiven. Now, that leads a lot of Bible scholars to believe that his illness was related to some sin issue. Now, as I've said before, and I want to make it clear, not every illness is related to a sin issue. If you have some kind of illness, you know, I'm not trying to suggest to you that, oh, it's because, you know, you've sinned. And some people make that connection, unfortunately. And the truth is that there are some, as I've mentioned before, some illnesses that are the direct result of sin issues. If if you're an alcoholic, you're going to destroy your liver. You run the potential of killing yourself and... If you've been sexually promiscuous, you could pick up a sexually transmitted disease, right? So we understand that there's some correlation between sin and sickness. But in in the larger sense, we live in a fallen world and people get sick all the time. It has nothing to do with sin issues of their own. Having said that, though, a lot of Bible scholars believe that because Jesus first addresses the sin issue of this guy's heart and soul, 
that perhaps his illness was related to a sin problem. And it is believed that perhaps even syphilis in this day existed as a sexually transmitted disease. And there's four different stages to syphilis. One is the primary, then it moves to a secondary, then it moves to a latent, and finally it's a tertiary stage of syphilis. And when you get to the tertiary stage, it affects your central nervous system. You can actually experience paralysis as a result. We don't know exactly what this guy might have been uh, what his problem was or what his sin issue was. And again, there may not have even been a sin connection, but the, the, the fact that Jesus first addresses the heart shows that he's more concerned about this man's soul than he is the healing of his, of his body. Because even after this guy gets healed, he's still going to die. And a greater issue is, where is he going to spend eternity? I have people all the time that, that ask for prayer for healing, and we anoint with oil, and we believe because God can still heal people today. But whenever I don't know the person who comes up for healing, the first question I'm going to ask is, where are you in your relationship with the Lord? Because it's not going to be a good thing for us to pray and ask God to heal their bodies if in the end their soul will never go to heaven. So this is a soul issue here. And it's important for uh, this guy to first have the deeper issue of life addressed, which is his soul. And so Jesus says to him, uh, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, verse 3 says that some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow was blaspheming. Now, they think that he's blaspheming because only God has the authority to forgive sins. Well, the fact of the matter is that Jesus is God, so it's not blasphemy. But to them who don't believe that he's God, they're thinking this guy is blaspheming. He's, he's pretending to be God. No, in fact, he is God. But please note with me that it says in verse 4, knowing their thoughts, knowing their thoughts. Jesus knows our thoughts. God knows our thoughts. There's nothing hidden before God. He knows all things. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he says, why do you entertain such evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or, or to say, get up and walk? Now, now think about this. If you're in the room there and Jesus says to this guy, your sins are forgiven, how do you know that? I mean, what's the evidence of that? Anybody could say that. Now, Jesus isn't just anybody, but what he's saying to those skeptics is, if you just think that what I did is, is easy because you don't see any tangible evidence, then let me just say to this guy, and he continues the second part, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he, he went home. He got up and he went home. And everybody was praising God because... Uh, of this mighty miracle. Now, as we talk about faith lessons, I just want to clarify faith itself. Faith is trust and confidence in the promises and faithfulness of God. It is not, and this is, this is, a, this is a problem point in some circles of Christianity, faith is not faith in faith. Faith is faith in God. It is having trust and confidence in the faithfulness and the promises of God. It is not faith in faith itself. A lot of people get focused on the result that they want, and they believe that they're supposed to have faith for the result. You're not supposed to have faith for the result. You can petition and make your request known to the Lord, and you can be specific and say, Lord, you know my heart, you know my desire, this is what I want. You can be specific with God. But faith is not believing in the end result. Faith is believing in God who can do all things and trusting the end result to him who is sovereign. Everybody understand that difference? And there's been a misappropriation of faith in some communities of, of the church. 
because people are believing that it's all about just kind of working yourself into this. I'm just going to believe and I'm going to believe and I'm going to believe, but believe in what? Not believe in the result, but believe in him who accomplishes all things for our good according to his good purposes. And that's what true faith really is. It's believing in the Lord. We're going to see this illustrated even more clearly as we make our way through the chapter. But So here Jesus heals this paralytic. Can you imagine this? It doesn't say how long he'd been paralyzed. It doesn't say to what degree. But if any of you have experienced an injury even for any length of time, you know how quickly muscles can atrophy. And this guy being a paralytic for any amount of time, he has to be emaciated and atrophied. But when Jesus healed him, I'm just imagining pop, 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 like, you know, pecs and glutes and guns are all coming back in order and big and nice and strong. And he's probably walking home that night. Hey, baby. Every night he's been dragged home on a mat. Not tonight. He's coming home in all his glory, ripped because Jesus has healed him. And so here he comes back home. What a surprise. I'm home. Well, verse 9 says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and, quote, sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Matthew, the writer here of this gospel, introduces himself. This is his autobiography section right here. He's talking about himself when he was called by Jesus to be one of Jesus's 12 disciples. Now, Matthew says something about himself that is a little different from the way that Mark and Luke record the calling of Matthew. When Mark and Luke record the calling of Matthew, they refer to Matthew's given name, Levi. They don't call him Matthew. They call him by his Hebrew name, Levi, which tells us that he was of the tribe of Levi. He was a Levite. Matthew doesn't refer to himself that way. In fact, nowhere in Matthew's gospel does he refer to himself as Levi. He refers to himself in a different way. In Mark's gospel, when, it, when Mark records that Jesus saw Matthew, it says that he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus. In Luke's gospel, when he says that Jesus saw Matthew, he says he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. So Mark identifies him as the son of Alphaeus. Luke identifies him as Jesus saw the tax collector. But when Matthew talks about himself, he says Jesus saw a man. A man. Sometimes we will look at a prostitute and think, prostitute, God sees a woman. Sometimes we see an addict. God sees a man. Matthew doesn't identify himself in, in the way that the other guys do because he wants to be known, instead of being called Levi, he wants to be called Matthew because Matthew in Hebrew, Matatiahu, means gift of Yahweh. That he's had an encounter here with Jesus. And Jesus has changed his life. He wants to be known as the gift of Yahweh, as the one in whom God has done a new work. Now, he's a tax collector here. It's probably better translated a customs agent 
There were three main toll booths, if you will, throughout Israel. One was at the north in Capernaum, which is where we are here. Uh, One was in Jericho, uh, getting the southern travelers. And one was in Caesarea, which was a port city on the Mediterranean. And uh, as people came through, it was basically uh, a toll. You would have to pay. And uh, some ancient historical records show that you'd have to pay based on the size of your cart, the number of people in your family, the goods that you were carrying through, you got taxed. And it was this toll that was collected as you, you know, went driving through. And there Matthew sits as a tax collector or a customs agent. And every tax collector would have a Roman soldier standing behind him. And he was considered an agent of the Roman government. So as a tax collector, he was despised by his fellow Jews. You know, much the same way that, you know, sometimes we kind of roll our eyes when we think about an IRS agent. And those of you who work for the IRS, we're thankful for you. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, but, you know, it's the privilege for living in America. So, you know, uh, whatever we can do to help. But anyhow, uh, here Matthew is, and he's not well respected because he's seen as a traitor. Tax collectors would collect more than they really needed because they'd have to give Rome what Rome was entitled to, and then they'd line their pockets with the rest. So they were generally seen as corrupt and as traitors to the Jews. And this is the guy that Jesus calls, and he says to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Luke tells us, and he left everything he had. Now, Matthew doesn't say that about himself. I think he's being humble here. He doesn't say it. Luke adds that part. He says, when Matthew was called, he left all that he had. But don't you know that no matter what you give up, you gain far more with Jesus. And Matthew gave up all that he had, but he got much more that was immeasurable. And so Jesus now is having dinner at Matthew's house, and there's people there who are other tax collectors and, quote, sinners. And so you get the righteous all... You know, their dander gets all up here because they're like, what in the world are you doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, by the way, endorses the fact that it's okay to go see a doctor. Again, there's some people like, well, if you have faith, you should never go see a doctor. No, Jesus actually said here, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's okay for the sick to go see a doctor every once in a while. It's not an indication of a lack of faith. And yet he challenges them and he says, but go and learn what this means. And he quotes Hosea 6.6. He gives him a Bible verse. He says, I want you to go home and have a little Bible study, have a little devotional. It's out of Hosea 6, 6. Find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We're going to end up finding in chapter 12 that he tells them to do it again because they didn't do it. They didn't do their homework. He says, I want you to go find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is the Lord of grace and mercy. He's not come to to call the righteous, but he's come to call sinners. And so though all these self-righteous people that were always, you know, up in arms about the stuff that Jesus was doing because he went where they wouldn't go because he went wherever people were in need. We can't have this fortress mentality when as Christians, we just kind of, you know, get ourselves locked up in the four walls of some kind of a monastery and think, well, we just want to see God and we're going to get alone and we just want to protect ourselves from the influences of this world. That's, that's true. The influence of this world, can be pretty uh, tempting. But if we cut ourselves off from the very people who need ministry, then we've done a disservice to a lost and dying world. And Jesus goes to places most people wouldn't because he's going to wherever people need him. I'm not suggesting that, you know, you, you just start marching off and hanging out with peop- and people and going to places that, that uh, unless it has a specific mission and a purpose behind it, 
but the opposite is going to be detrimental to the world. We can't just cut ourselves off from ministry. People need ministry. People need Jesus. People need to see Jesus in our lives. And so they take issue with him. But Jesus says, I want you to go and learn what this little Bible study means. But take a cup of coffee and take your Bible and go sit out under a tree and figure out what this verse means. They're not going to do it, but he challenges them. Well, in verse 14, it says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, these are John the Baptist's disciples, and they're asking Jesus, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. And we talked about fasting back in the Sermon on the Mount a couple of chapters ago, so I'm not going to get back into all of that. But basically here what Jesus is saying is that fasting is the self-discipline of denying yourself food so that you can seek the face of God. That's basically in a nutshell what fasting is. And what Jesus says is, they are in my presence. They see the face of God. They don't need to fast right now. But the time will come when I will be taken from them, and then they will fast. So since Jesus has gone back into heaven and he's coming again, now we are to fast whenever the Lord would lead us to do that as a discipline for seeking him in a deeper way. And so Jesus says that's the reason they don't fast right now. They have the bridegroom. I'm with them. One day I'm going to go away and then then it'll be more appropriate to fast. And then Jesus adds in verse 16, he says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. He's talking about here how basically a wineskin would be the height of an animal, usually a goat skin. And when the wineskin would get too old, it would become brittle. It would be dried out. And if you put new wine in it, and new wine is still in the fermentation process, that as it begins to expand and the gases of fermentation begin to expand the wineskin, if it's old and brittle, it'll burst it. So you don't put new wine in old wineskins. You don't sew a patch on it because it'll just, when it starts to expand, it's going to break away from the patch. And so you pour new wine into new wineskins. Now, as I'm Preparing for this Bible study, I'm thinking about the good old days of patches. I don't know if this, you know, probably is going to date me, but some of you can probably relate to this. You remember when, when you actually used to wear your jeans until you got holes in them, okay? Not buy them with holes in them. I, who started that trend? Somebody doing drugs somewhere decided, you know what we could do? We could take all our old jeans with holes in them and sell them. People will buy them. They will love them. What in the world are we doing? Now, I actually, I actually have a pair that I bought with some holes in it. So, I mean, I'm caught up into the whole thing. It's ridiculous. But I remember the day when you actually got holes in your jeans. Can any of you relate? Your mom would iron patches on the jean holes. So those are the good old days. So you have these, these old jeans, and you get the holes in them, and mom starts ironing the new patches. And the patches, are, they're all new. They're like bright, you know, dark blue and the rest of your jeans are all faded. They stand out like a sore thumb, and then they start to peel. Do you ever notice that? When it goes through the washer too many times, then the edges of the patches start to peel, and it never really works.
Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Matthew on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can download our mobile app, too, while you're there. It's under On The Go. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we want to invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30 and 11.45, as well as on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. CornerstoneConnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. And you can meet the staff. If you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us to study Matthew, and we hope you'll tune in again to learn more about Jesus. That's right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know